And the context uh, mainly is Judah. Uh, Israel is in existence as a nation here. So we have these two nations, you know, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. During part of this, and I'm not a, a massive historian here to know all this, these ins and outs of all these wars and stuff, but in part of this uh, history of Isaiah here, there's a, an alliance made between Israel and Syria and they are kind of a combined force against Judah I mean if you can believe that I mean Israel's attacking Judah of course that does happen some during this the history of the kings and all that that's part of it um, um, so Isaiah is a book of prophecy and Isaiah is basically a prophet in the southern kingdom to Judah and the kings of Judah so that's where Isaiah is coming from. Having said that, there's a tendency for me <clears throat> when I read prophecy to apply this to myself or to apply it to the United States. Um, well, mm, yes and no. Uh, the United States is not Israel. Um, now, the Israel of God exists in the United States among his people I know that but politically at least in terms of what I understand there's no covenant between God and the United States although some people think so and teach it that way it seems to me not so these specific prophecies apply to Israel and Judah and the nations around that during that time frame and so forth so I think we can't just say okay well this is that and you know this is what's going to happen here because God says so well it applies to Judah I mean, in those days however I think we can see um, God's uh, mind if we could say that and God's uh, heart and how he deals with his people or we can see what sin is as if, if we don't know and uh, we can see maybe the results of sin and so forth and how, just kind of in terms of general tendencies. So I would say we could read this in terms of general tendencies of God's pleasure, displeasure, how he deals with people and so forth without being too specific, I think, and saying, well, this is that and this is what's going to happen because it's, it's not that way. I mean, it's for the kingdom of Judah is how it's written. Having said all that, as you know, uh, in Isaiah, there's a lot of messianic prophecy also. So it seems as if Isaiah is giving a bunch of bad news about Judah, but then he comes in with good news, a messianic hope, right? And then there's more bad news, and then there's good news, a messianic hope, and so forth. So anyway, just to say that uh, about the book as we get started. A few more things about... Uh, as prologue uh, this book uh, addresses three basically historical p 
periods. Chapters 1 through 39, uh, pretty much, are Isaiah's lifetime, or all these occur within Isaiah's life and current events and so forth. And the dates I have are around 739 or maybe 740 B.C. to 701 B.C., so that's a 40-year period from 740, let's say, to 700 B.C., right right there. Um, is that 40? Yes, yeah, 40. Uh, then we get into chapters 40 through 55, which it looks like deal a lot with a future exile of, the, of Judah into our Babylonian captivity as we talk about it. And then the last chapters, chapters 56 through 66, seem to be talking about a return back to the land after exile. Um, so... Um, well, let's see here. Well, I'll, I'll say more about that. So, during Isaiah's lifetime, that the period around 740-700, right around in there, B.C., uh, Assyria is the dominant uh, political and military power in the region. Judah's king at the first of Isaiah is the famous king Uzziah, who was uh, one of the good kings of Judah. Uh, as you read your Bible, you know, particularly in Kings or maybe Chron- Second Chronicles and so forth, it really gets to be such a repetition, I mean, about Judah. I mean, they have a good king and a bad king. A good king, two bad kings. One good king, three bad kings. A good king, a bad... And so the, the good kings are trying to lead them back to the worship of Yahweh, and the bad kings are reinstituting Baal worship and Moloch worship and paganism and, and all of this. It's unbelievable. I mean, how, why are they doing this? You know, it's unbelievable. But they introduced it, reintroduced this paganism and all this stuff. And so Judah's just going back and forth with, it, with this all the time. Israel, the northern kingdom, on the contrary, if you'll read it in the Kings, never has a good king. <laughs> they never have a good... They're all pagans. They uh, set up the golden calves to worship at Bethel and another place and all this. And... It's just a grim situation, but but God has mercy even on Israel by continuing to send prophets up to Israel, like Elijah, for example, one of the greatest of the prophets. All right. So, uh, so uh, Assyria then is a, is a, is threatening Judah is the first context I think here in Isaiah because of some weak kings in Assyria. Both Israel and Judah enjoyed a period of peace and prosperity. Uh, good. Uh, but there ensued a sense of, uh, of prosperity and then complacency, yes, and then serving other gods, namely gods of power and fertility. That would be the Baal gods and the Asherah and all that stuff. But a new strong king arises in Assyria named Tiglath-Pileser in 745 B.C. And a king in Israel named Menachem almost immediately has to pay tribute to Assyria. So this is, happens a lot as you read the kings and all that. They pay tribute to these other guys to keep them from attacking, you know. Say, well, we'll pay you off and that. Uh, so the question now for Isaiah is, should Judah follow suit? Should Judah be paying off Assyria? Or should she be a pro-Assyria or anti-Assyria? So that's the political question that Isaiah is dealing with. 
With the accession of Ahaz to the throne of Judah in 735 B.C., a pro-Assyria policy was adopted. This is a king of Judah named Ahaz. He was was a terrible king. I mean, he was horrible Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of paganism and all that. This resulted in more binding treaties with Assyria, including recognition of Assyria's gods. So Judah, can you imagine? So now they sign a treaty with Assyria to keep Assyria from attacking them, but part of the treaty is they've got to acknowledge Assyria's gods. (laughs) I mean... We think we're bad off, and we are. But, but look at Judah. I mean, they're bad off, man. <clears throat> um, the next king, Hezekiah, who I believe is a good king, adopts an anti-Syrian policy and becomes more dependent on Egypt. So they're going back and forth politically between Assyria and Egypt. Who should we give loyalty to and so on? Isaiah is opposed to both these policies. He recommends dependence on the Lord. Isaiah is opposed to various intrigues and attempts to form alliances with other nations for the defeat of the Assyrians chapters 40 through 66 seem not to be tied to specific events as are chapters well 1 through 39 or 6 through 39 specifically chapters 40 through 55 offer hope to a people who are about to go into exile and then chapters 56 through 66 seem to speak to people returning from exile (coughs) this sets up the problem of the so called first and second Isaiah Uh, because chapters 40 through 66 are talking about Isaiah uh, events after the life of Isaiah so scholars say, how could that be? I mean, these must be additions by a school of prophets that follow Isaiah or some such thing as that. A, a not totally unreasonable thought. However, the main problem, well, there are two problems. One is they say there's stylistic differences. The differences in style are a good bit, so it must be another author. But they've Scholars make the same charge about some of the Pauline writings and stuff. They say, well, the style's different. Well, I mean, what if you were writing a letter to somebody and then you wrote a a poem and sent it in a separate envelope? I mean, the styles would be a lot different, although you'd be the same author, you know. However, I think the main problem is lack of belief. I think the main problem is lack of belief in, in predictive prophecy. The scholars, particularly the liberals, do not like to believe in predictive prophecy. They don't, basically, they don't like the supernatural. Um, basically, they don't like the bodily resurrection of Christ, which uh, seems to mean they may be in another camp than we are. Uh, <clears throat> uh, so, however, the Old Testament is full of predictive prophecy. For instance, in Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, as Herod calls the scholars in and say, where will Messiah be born? Immediately they say he's got to be born in Bethlehem. All the rabbis knew this before the birth of Jesus. How do they know this? From Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, which says he must be born in Bethlehem. And so that's, that's specific predicted prophecy right there in Micah to the max. I mean, Messiah will be born, and guess what? He's got to be born in Bethlehem. So that's hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. So the Old Testament has these things, has predictive prophecy in it, which 
I mean, you don't have to be smart to see this. I mean, you just read the Bible. I mean, you know, there it is. I mean, it's in there, you know. So, so the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, does have predictive prophecy in it. And so it seems to me that Isaiah would be in that case where Isaiah is simply predicting future events. The, the guy, Oswald, I think is his name, the commentator that I'm reading uh, on Isaiah, uh, he, he doesn't hold with this multiple authorship view. I, I mean, this guy's a scholar. Uh, well, he, one of his points is that this multiple authorship view leads to all kind of chopping up the book in terms of trying to interpret it. I mean, what are, what's it trying to say in terms of the theme? So he, he says interpretation is much better if we just look at a single author approach. So anyway, that's, that's where I'm going to come from. Um, in part because so many people define prophet as being a fourth teller yes. instead of a fourth teller. Both, yeah. Well, and it's both. And really, they're both. It's both. You know, so, sure. And so they 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 hate the idea of being a fourth teller. Yeah. Go fourth teller, fine. Buy that to speak of something that hasn't happened yet, as if it's going to happen. Exactly. It's hard for people to take. It is. It is. Well, yes, and, and the Jews, as they read Isaiah, would interpret a lot of these clearly messianic passages as being the nation of Israel. But I'm sorry. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. I'm sorry. Israel never saved me. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't see it, really. Israel has never died from Israel never died for my sins. All right. Uh, Okay, therefore, in these later chapters of Isaiah, they report the prophet's work in speaking to the future of his people, both in exile and return. The central theme of the book relates to the nature and destiny of the people of God. While this people is, on the one hand, destroyed and corrupted, it is called to be a manifestation of the glory of the, uh, of the glory of God in this world. So how can a sinful, corrupt people become the servants of God? This is a good question. This theme is developed in the following way. In chapters 1 through 5, the people are sinful, yet called. In chapter 6, we have the famous vision of the Holy One. Chapters 7 through 39 emphasize the need for trust in Yahweh. Israel can only become God's servant and a light to the nations if she comes to the place of trust, of radical trust. Chapters 40 through 48 speak to Israel in exile where they experience God's greatness and his boundless love so that they, like the prophet, are willing to say, here am I, send me. How can Israel be enabled to do this? It is through the coming servant. And here we get into these so-called servant songs. And Isaiah, the servant is going to do all these things. The Jews interpret the servant to be Israel. I'm sorry, they're not that good. Uh, but uh, it seems that it's talking about Christ, as we'll read. <clears throat> Chapters 40 through 55 round out the vision of Messiah, which was initially given in chapters 9 through 11 and other places. And chapters 56 through 66 speak of the revelation of God's glory through his people. All right. 
Uh, yeah, well, Dave and I were talking here. If you wanted to be a Bible scholar, like a lot of books in the Bible, I mean, you could spend your life in the book of Isaiah. Uh, you would have to become a massive historian. You would have to know Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and maybe Latin to get you started. And, I mean, you could be massive in this. I mean, you could spend your whole life. And like a lot of books in the Bible, if you tried to read the comment let's say, on the book of Isaiah, just like the Song of Solomon. You could start reading now, and you'd never finish, I mean, for your whole life. You couldn't read the commentaries that have been written. So it's massive, but it, praise the Lord, we're not that massive, so we just read what we've got. <laughs> we read what we've got. All right. So I'm going to let you help me in looking up some passages here as we get started with our interpretive method. Scott, if you could uh, help me with Romans chapter 15, verse 4, and Charlotte, John chapter 5, verse 39, and David, Luke 24, 44 through 47. These will help us. These will always help us, I think, in reading the Old Testament. Scott, Romans 15, 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Okay, this is Paul writing in Romans. Of course, when he says Scriptures, he's talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament's just being formed. So all of this Old Testament writing, say the New Testament authors, is written for our instruction. It's not just for them, it's also for us. So I think we do well not to throw the Old Testament out. Like some of our friends in the Church of Christ might want to do. They claim to be a New Testament church. Well, let them be a New Testament church then. <laughs> and read the Old Testament. <laughs> John five thirty nine, Charlotte. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Wow. So this is Jesus talking to the scribes. He says, you're doing a good work in searching the scriptures because you think you're going to find eternal life there, but it's not. they're talking about me. So on the basis of Christ's words, not on the basis of modern scholarship, we would see that there must be much in the Old Testament that speaks about Christ. So it's our job as Bible readers, I think, to try to find these, these spots and these places. David, Luke 24, 44 through 47. Luke uh, 44 through 47? Yes. Okay. Uh, he said to them, I guess this is Jesus speaking, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Wow. 48? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> That's enough, yeah. <laughs> you can't so, take the more. <laughs> you can't take it. So Christ gives the apostles, a, 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 I would say, a special ability to, to understand the Old Testament, and yea, to write about the Old Testament. It's what we call the New Testament. 
And, uh, and he says, look, it's, it's about my death, it's about my resurrection, it's all about me. And so, again, uh, although I, I can't just maybe just pull everything out here and say, well, you know, here it is. But I, but I think as Bible readers, we need to keep that in mind. And uh, if you see something in the Old Testament that says, wow, this looks sort of like Christ here. Well, you may be on to something. I mean, stay with it. Stay with it. As God opens these things up to us, you know. All right, is everybody happy so far? Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wish I could remember, you know, like someone like Josh McDowell or Lee Strobel that you know, points out how many prophecies about Christ are in the Old Testament, very specific prophecies about right. Christ. Yeah. And then the odds that one person would come along and Infinite, yeah. It's it's astronomical. It's astronomical, yeah. Yeah, He leaves out the virgin birth. Just to be fair. He leaves out the virgin birth. He's not counting the prophecy about the virgin birth. Give everybody everybody else a chance. Give the unbelievers a chance, right? (laughs) Okay, good. All right, well, let's see now. All right, we're halfway done, and I haven't even read verse 1 yet. Uh, let's read then. Uh, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So this gives his ministry time here in the reign of these four kings. And probably his prophetic ministry, I, I don't know the dates exactly, but probably it started more or less there with Uzziah or maybe toward the end of Uzziah's reign as we get into chapter 6 in the year the king Uzziah died, right? Yes. So this may be, be his early days as a prophet there, possibly. Then these other kings of Judah, it is, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Um, verse 2, let's read Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Okay. Uh, okay, well, we've talked about the kings up here in verse 1. Verses 2 and 3. Uh, our sustenance and our well-being, I think, probably. Most of us in this uh, room here would acknowledge that God is the source of our well-being and that we are uh, probably prospering beyond what we deserve uh, well, you look at some other countries in the world, man. <laughs> you know, people are living in mud huts and struggling to find enough to eat. I mean, we're not, we're not living like that. But uh, our blessing, we should acknowledge, comes from God. Uh, but Israel is not acknowledging that. Is not acknowledging that. Um, Hosea makes a similar prophecy about, or excuse me, Judah is not acknowledging that their well-being comes from Yahweh. Hosea makes a similar prophecy about Israel in Hosea chapter 2, verse 7. So let's look at that. 
Hosea 2, 7. And let me just read that real quick. Yeah. Hosea 2. We could read the whole thing. No. Uh, well. Uh, well, let's start with verse 8. This is Israel. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, who lavished on her silver, gold, which they used for Baal. So now God has given them all these blessings. This is the northern kingdom of Israel. Yahweh is blessing them. So who do they honor? Baal. Uh, Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season, and I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her sabbaths, her appointed feasts, and I will lay waste her vines, her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. So the blessing that Yahweh was giving to Israel, they attributed it to Baal. They said, Well, we, we thank Baal for all these blessings. This is bad. (laughs) I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them, and I will punish her for the feast days of Baal when she burned (coughs) offerings to them and adorned herself with her rings and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me. And on and it goes. And then the famous passage is there. Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her there. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor into a door of hope. So again, there's redemption possible for Israel here, you know, just like for Judah. I mean, this is the way the prophets are. I mean, they're reading these guys the riot act that says, but Yahweh may have mercy yet. You know, it's, it's possible. Go ahead, Jim. God loves to manifest his mercy. Yes. And, and even today, uh, I'm not talking about us believers, but there's many people the world is still worshiping Baal. Indeed. And their gods putting their money in and their cabins and all that they're doing. And they're forgetting God. And Indeed. Forgetting it comes from Baal, the world, and worship. Indeed. So it's sort of the same even today. We can see a parallel. But God is saving people around the world in our community still. He is still saving He's people. In mercy and yeah. grace. Amen. This is true. <laughs> Very good. It seems like uh, Jose, Go ahead. Uh, during that last bit you read is talking about the Babylonian captivity which finally did I mean, but as the wilderness and, but you will speak comfort to them there and, uh, and, and uh, yes. as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt yes. a very similar situation yes and that would be the Assyrian captivity with, with Israel with the northern well yeah with, with Israel yeah. Uh, but for Judah anyway for Judah Babylon, yes absolutely and that did break them of their Paganness. It did of their idolatry. But they still managed to make a idol of the law. And then they traditions. became legalists. Yeah, no balance. Okay, <clears throat> verse four. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evil doers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The Holy One of Israel. It, uh, I'm not sure it's unique, but maybe uh, a title that's used by Isaiah a lot, the Holy One of Israel. You don't find this so much in other books, or I don't know about it all, but 
Anyway, my notes say that this title is, is used by Isaiah 26 times in the book of Isaiah, this exact title, the Holy One of Israel. Um, so, uh, 26 is a nice number. <laughs> it's 2 times 13. 13, the number of Christ, 2, the number of witnesses. So Isaiah is witnessing to Christ, the perfect witness. The Holy One of Israel. In the Gospels, it's used for the Holy One of God by demons. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. Well, all right, verse 5. <clears throat> Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. The soul, the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds that are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Uh, I think maybe I, I won't read this, but Paul repeats this verse in Romans 9, talking about Israel. And he says, Paul repeats it. He says, if, we, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. Uh, so this introduces here in Isaiah and also Paul in Romans 2 the doctrine of the remnant, which is there's a remnant. I mean, there's a remnant in Judah. No doubt there was a remnant up in Israel as bad off as it was. So there's a remnant of believers. So in our day where we may, hmm, rightly or wrongly, feel like we're going to hell in a handbasket, there's a remnant of believers here. Uh, and our city, our, our city probably has a lot of believers in it, really, to tell you the truth. And, and throughout the nation, there's, there, there are believers here. We're, we're not the last believers in Israel, <laughs> like Elijah thought. I'm the last one, God. <laughs> Connor. The Septuagint translates verse 9. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a seed... Okay. So you have the seed. Yes. Here at the beginning of the book. Okay. We started. And Isaiah's already talking about the seed. The seed of Abraham. Yeah, all that. Yeah. Well, this gets back to what you were saying. It's not. It's not all about Israel, right? Good. There's something else underneath. Okay. Good. All right. Good. Well, I'll just throw out on top of that. I'll throw out that there are commentators who make a big deal out of their 66 chapters in Isaiah yeah. and 66 books in the Protestant Bible. Yeah. And that each chapter in Isaiah kind of reflects uh, that book of the Bible. Uh, and you, that's kind of a stretch. I mean, you, you kind of have to strain at that. But, I mean, you do have a mention of the seed here in Genesis. That's true. The first promise of the seed. Oh, very good. Okay. Well, that's true. Good. Jim? Just one little line referring to what you're all talking about Israel. Paul said also that they are not all Israel, which are Israel. This is true. There is a difference. There is an Israel of God, which we are part of the Israel of God. Believers. But not all Israel. Indeed. Yes. That's true. Anybody else? I've just been talking a while here. 
if we if we have time, can we go back to verse three for just a minute? You go back here, for um, whatever you want to say. <laughs> so this is this is the first vision, right? This is the start of the whole book. This is the beginning of the book. The first image that Isaiah has to share is an ox and a donkey at the crib. Now they're trying to help us out with the word crib, but that's a bad translation. Tell they should have just said manger. Mine says manger is the better translation. The American Standard came So the, the first vision that Isaiah gives is an ox and a donkey at, at the, the manger. manger. I love it. Right? See? So from, from the beginning of nativity paintings, and this is all throughout church history, there's always been an ox and a donkey. That's right. It's not in the Gospels, but it's right here. Beautiful. Thank and this you. This is where they get that from, mm-hmm. is the ox and the donkey. Thank you. Great. Yeah, I, I didn't see that because my version says crib, but Kat, New American Standard says manger. manger. It, says, it says master's manger. The master's manger. Wow. Just in case master's there's any manger. It's master's manger. Wow, wonderful, yeah. wonderful. That's great. So, I mean, from the beginning, he's already giving us visions of the nativity. Yeah. Beautiful. That's great. Say we're finding Christ in the Old Testament. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> who knows? Who knows? That's you, you, Isaiah, you, I mean, he, he's, he's speaking through the mouth of God. And God is speaking through his mouth. Yeah. That's where the prophecy is coming Well, sure. Yeah. Isaiah. You're right. So, yeah. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. I love it. Okay. Well, this is great. Okay, I think we're on verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now, uh, Isaiah is identifying... Uh, the rulers of Judah as being rulers of Sodom. So he is calling Judah Sodom. Okay. Uh, give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams. <clears throat> uh, Jim, if you would help us with Hebrews 10 verse 4, please. Uh, so my question here, God says, I've had enough of this, these burnt offerings and stuff. Uh, so my question is, did he ever really enjoy it? Uh, Hebrews 10, 4. Yes. Go ahead. I'm going to read this slow. Read it. For it is not possible <laughs> that the blood of bull and goat should take away sins. It is not possible. Okay. Well, my version says impossible. So, it, yeah, yes. So at this time, I'd like to do my my famous word study on the word impossible. You know, what does that mean? <laughs> it means not possible. So, uh, yeah, the blood of bulls and goats never took away sin, even in the Old Testament. No, no, never. Okay. If you go back to uh, the the built the temple of Solomon. Solomon built the temple and the sacrifice that I'm going on there with hundreds oh. of oxen oh, or whatever. Yes. I mean, oh, yeah. there was somebody that calculated the amount of blood yeah. that was spilled oh. at that moment in time. I mean, you're talking about thousands of gallons of blood. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was. Yeah. Like a river. Blood, someone pointed out that all that blood combined is not worth one drop of blood. I got it. Amen. That's good. <laughs> all right. <clears throat> Okay, let's keep going here. We've got to stop soon. Okay, verse 12. Uh, wait, I didn't finish 11. But 
I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. There it is. <clears throat> Verse 12. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, incenses of abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations I cannot endure. Iniquity and solemn assembly. Uh, your new moons and feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice and correct oppression. All right. Verses 12 through 15. God is saying, I'm sick of all this. Worship stuff and all this that you're doing. Uh, perhaps, in, if we made a modern analogy, uh, it might be something like, "We are not rebellious. Look at our faithful worship." Uh, and I don't. I mean, I don't perceive that that we're being that we we are particularly rebellious. But I, I mean, I don't know. Everybody's hard. I don't even know my own, to tell you the truth. Uh, so, you know, wherever that hits, we'll just let it hit. Uh, but in verses 16 and 17, the true worship, true worship in the Old Testament is the same as in the New, to visit widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's what James, the prophet, the apostle James says uh, in 17... Learn to, do eat, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. James didn't just get this out of his own head. <laughs> it came from the Old Testament. <laughs> it comes from Isaiah. To visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. This is old teaching. This is old teaching. All right. <clears throat> Verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. And though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So, uh, uh, let's see what we can say here. Well, uh, the Lord is simply asking Israel to reason here, which is they're all bound up in sin and disobedience and stuff. So how can they be made right, particularly on the basis of what the prophet Jeremiah says, that our hearts are desperately wicked? I mean, who can even know it? God, in effect, says, well, let's be reasonable. Uh, I've got to forgive your sin. <laughs> That's the only way that it can happen. So this is a you know a classic passage here in, in Isaiah one eighteen. It's learning the fear of God. Okay. That's what it is. More yeah. analogy, just learning the fear of God. Yeah. And exactly what that means. You spend your whole life just learning what it means to fear God. Well, okay. That's, that's that's what's reasonable. That is reasonable. It is reasonable. Yeah. It is reasonable. Another thought is too, which I believe is unreasonable what God says. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we agree. And I can't fix my mm-hmm. weakness. 
Right. So I agree with what you're saying, and I believe what you're saying. Absolutely. That you have a remedy for me. Yes. I, I agree with you. I confess. It's only reasonable. We can't fix ourselves. Yeah. Is the wickedness that Paul talks about these high places, spiritual wickedness, principalities, it seems to me, I mean, many people are in church, but what is the hindrance? Could it be a help of the excluded middle affecting people to keep them out of God's house along with their fleshly desires? I'm, I'm sure. Evil well, yeah. I mean, we have a lot of enemies, yes. you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Yeah. It's only reasonable that it's God should help us out. But it's, but it's true to think, it's good to think about these things yeah. because they're real. Yeah. They're real. Yeah. Although they're defeated. Yeah. If you trust Christ. Well, I think we better stop here. I thought we might finish chapter one, but we did not finish. But uh, we will keep going uh, as, we, as we're able. Thanks for coming.